Before I get started, I gotta shout out the Prime Line boys. I see you, come on. Yeah, yeah. I've been hounding these boys for about two years and they're like, I'm busy. I'm like, it's Friday night, what could you be doing? I'm sure they were busy. But they're here now and that's what matters, come on. We're gonna be in the book of Jonah. All the text will be behind me on the screen, so if you didn't bring a Bible, ain't no problem. I have served at Northview for about five years. So I've been in pastoral ministry for five years. This is the only church I've ever served in. It has been a great joy of mine to serve in this church. And over the years, I have gotten to know many people. And then there's been a few guys that I've walked with in one-on-one discipleship relationships. There have been highs and lows in these relationships. And I was thinking of one relationship this week that connects to Jonah's story. I had this guy that I'd been meeting with for about two years. And me and my buddy met almost like every two weeks, sometimes every three weeks. We both have family commitments, but we we met very consistently. We started meeting and reading the Bible together. And then we started doing something called Bible Overview, which is a 27-week little program. It gets you from Genesis to Revelation. And we moved on from that to working through Knowing Knowing God by J.I. Packer. So we, we were learning so much. And as I, I kept getting to know this guy, as, as he became a friend of mine, as our, our families became friends, I kept thinking to myself, like, this is amazing. God, this guy is growing so much. Like, Lord, thank you for the work you've done in his life. And then two years into our relationship, I got blindsided. Uh, my friend left his wife for another woman. Two years of walking with this guy. This guy knew all the Christian words. This guy had great theology. We believed a lot of the same things. We would get together and it felt like I was with a brother. And yet, he walked away. That reality, that knowing stuff is not necessarily saving faith, that knowing stuff is is not enough to say you have a relationship with the Lord, I think we see that in Jonah's story. You see, Jonah knew all the right things. He's a prophet of God. But in his story, I think we learn a very important lesson that saving faith is active. Saving faith is active. We're going to work through the story in in two parts, unwilling prophet and unlikely converts. So the first part, unwilling prophet. This is Jonah starting in chapter 1. Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Before we really get into the story, i got to give you some of the historical background. If you have heard of the story of Jonah, you, I'm sure you've heard haters talk about the story of Jonah. There are many people in today's world who deny the historical event that Jonah covers. That these four chapters are basically a parable. There are many people who think that, not just outside of the church, but even within the church. So I want to interact with some of these things, and then we'll jump into the rest of the story. So... There are two reasons that people challenge the historicity of this book. 
The first is that there are apparent historical inaccuracies. So as you read through the story, there's four chapters, there are things that Jonah says that seem hard to believe. So in chapter 4, for example, Jonah will say, or God will say about the city of Nineveh, like there's 120,000 people there. And to us, we don't care, it's just a number. But people have done archaeological digs on the city of Nineveh, and it was about three miles wide. So that city probably could have only had like maximum capacity, 60,000 to 90,000 people. So you're like, the math does not check out. So people look at something like that. Uh, People will also look at the linguistic development of Hebrew. Now this is like some nerd stuff, but people can track the way that language changes over time. And that is obvious, right? We We don't sound like Shakespeare, right? Languages do change over time. So people look at the book of Jonah and they think, well, Jonah was apparently written in the 8th century BC, but the language seems more like 6th century or 5th century. I don't think this book is historical. I think it's made up. I think it's a parable. So people look at some of these historical inaccuracies, or alleged historical inaccuracies, and then if they can get past those, they run into a whole bunch of supernatural events. The, the, the story of Jonah, right, if you've read the kid version, Jonah gets eaten by a whale, right? If you've seen the VeggieTale one, Jonah gets eaten by a very large fish and apparently doesn't die, but three days later pops up on the beach. So there are supernatural events in this book that make it hard for people to believe. The, the fish eating a guy and then somehow transporting him through the ocean. Uh, the idea that an entire city would respond to one prophet who gave a one-sentence message and repent, that would never happen. That's what people say. But I want to give you four reasons why Jonah is a historical book, and then we'll jump into the story. I, these are important because I, I want you to believe this story, not just because it's in the Bible, but because it's true. So the very first reason that you can know Jonah is a historical event is that there is a person in the Old Testament who has the name of Jonah. So in 2 Kings 14.25, you don't need to look it up, I'm not going to show it on the screen, there is a reference to this same person, same name, same father, same city of origin. If you're going to make up a story, you start with a fake character. If you're going to base it on a real person, you change some of the details. But Jonah's a historical event, so it would make sense that the person spoken of in 2 Kings is the same person that God speaks to in Jonah chapter 1. Secondly, Jesus spoke of Jonah as a historical person. So when you look at the way Jesus recounts this story, it's it's interesting that he doesn't in any way question the historicity. So this is Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. Now some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. They're they're approaching Jesus. They're trying to catch him in, in a theological trap. And they say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he, being Jesus, answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And at this point, we'd expect him to say, well, you know, that made-up story in the Old Testament, but there's a powerful lesson here. But Jesus doesn't talk of it in that way. He talks of it like a historical event. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus draws a comparison. He says, I am going to die. You don't think I'm God. The Pharisees, the scribes, they didn't think he was God. And he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be in a tomb for three days. Dies on Good Friday. 
Tomb is empty on Sunday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the earth. The resurrection is a historical event. Jesus is comparing one Old Testament historical event to a future historical event that he is going to live through. Jesus speaks of this story like it is, in fact, a real occurrence. So if we, if we have these two facts in our mind and we circle back to the historical inaccuracies or the alleged historical inaccuracies, some of the things start to get a little bit clearer. So the, the biggest one in my mind is that 120,000. Like the math just doesn't check out. So it, you, you have to have a solution for that. And when you look at it, it seems very challenging at first. But if you take a step back, I think there's a very plausible explanation. So there's a map. Yeah, perfect. It's already on the screen. That when you look at the city of Nineveh, Nineveh could only have between 60,000 and 90,000 people. But if you expand the circle a little bit to the neighboring city and the little villages and farms around the city, and you talked about it as we would say like the greater Nineveh area, then it would make sense that that would be somewhere north of 100,000 people, maybe even 120,000 people. And this is the way we talk of big cities, right? When, when we say, I'm going to Vancouver, we mean wildly different things at times, right? We, like, that could mean Richmond, that could mean Burnaby, that could mean North Shore, but it's all Vancouver, right? This last summer, I was invited to preach in Vancouver. I thought they meant, like, just getting over the bridge, right? Like Burnaby, that's where I'm going, right? 30-minute drive. It was North Van. It was a 55-minute drive. I, that's not what I signed up for. Uh, I was almost late to the service, which I was, I was cutting it close to begin with. That was on me. But that the way that we speak of our own cities, I think, is a reminder that this is just the way people talk. You talk of the big city. You don't have to live in Vancouver to say you're from the Vancouver area. In Jonah's time, it was no different. Nineveh was the big city. It was the capital city. And the neighboring towns, if you lump them all together, that region would be called the greater Nineveh area. Second, the, the other challenge that people will raise is the linguistic challenges, right? The language doesn't seem old enough. But the reality of that is that we have very limited records. People wrote on parchments, and parchments don't do well in the ancient Near East. Right? In the desert, they just rot. So we have a really limited scope of primary documents. So people saying, no, it, that, that writing is 400 years younger than it appears, that's a guess. So if that's a guess and the historical inaccuracy of the size of the city doesn't seem to be such a challenge, and Jesus spoke of it as a real event, I, I, I think this is a real story. And I think this real story has a very important lesson for us, that Something about saving faith. So I want to jump into the story. And I Jonah was a real person, and he was a real prophet with, with a real ministry. That the book of Jonah opens with a classic prophetic call. So I'm going to read it one more time. Jonah 1, 1 to 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. Like calling out is preach. Preach against this city for their evil has come up before me. God raises up a prophet, speaks to him, gives him a very clear command, and says, go. Like, in a timely manner, I need you to get your butt to that location and do the thing I told you to do. This sounds very similar to the way God spoke to Elijah in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, came to him, Elijah, arise, 
Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. God calls him, sends him on a mission. The book of Jonah begins with God calling one of his prophets, a real man, for a real mission. Jonah's mission is to go and speak a word against the city of Nineveh. And this is what prophets did. If you you know your Old Testament history, prophets had basically two jobs. They would either A, remind the people of the covenant. So if, if you know the Old Testament story, God had chosen one nation, Israel, and it said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And at various times, Israel would do stupid things. And God would send a prophet and the prophet would say, hey, you remember how God said he was your God and you were his people? And they would say, yeah, we remember. You should obey him. And the people would say, no, thank you. Or they would say yes. And then they would either get curses for disobedience or blessings for obedience. Prophets went and reminded the people that God was their God and they should serve him. The other thing that prophets did is they would explicitly call people to repentance. So not just the general, like, you should obey God, but the, like, what you are doing is wicked. That was part of their job. Jonah's mission here is the second one. What you are doing is wicked. You got you to change. What's interesting is that God doesn't send uh, Jonah to his own people. He sends them to a totally different place, through the desert. And Jonah hears that message, and he's like, I agree with you, Lord. They are evil. If you look at the, old, uh, the, the historical background to Nineveh, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and at this time, they were kind of on a downward slope, but, or they were on an upward slope, about to go into a downward slope, and they were world-renowned for their military ability and for their torture of their enemies. Like, that's what they were good at. So they would fight you in a battle, they would win, and then they would do terrible things. So let me give you a few examples. Uh, one of their kings, Asher Banipal, uh, one of his favorite moves was he would tear the lips off of people. He would take them prisoner. He would tear their lips off and cut off their hands. So they're not dead, but they cannot do anything because they have no hands. And they, like, their, their face is permanently disfigured because they don't have lips. That was his way of shaming his enemies. And that is already pretty bad, but another king was like, well, that's terrible. I can do one worse. Tilgath Pileser, uh, what he would do is he would have some of his soldiers skin people alive. Like they would fillet them and publicly. These were some, like pretty wicked people. They would do pretty wicked things. So when, when God tells Jonah, go to this city because their wickedness rises before me, it is no surprise. The interesting thing is that the word that God uses for wicked can be read two different ways. It can be understood as a, as a morality thing, like these are bad people, they do bad things, they have bad hearts, they disobey God's law. Or it can be more general, more passive. Bad things are happening. Natural disasters, wars, people are being hurt. I think God uses that term because both probably applied in this city. This city's not a great place. And God has a message to them like, hey, you gotta change the way you live. And Jonah is his chosen instrument. Jonah's a real prophet with a real mission. But Jonah is not a willing prophet. He's a real rebel. So what Jonah does is he hears the message and says, I have no desire to do that. I have, those people are terrible. They're wicked. 
And more than that, Jonah knows that within two generations, the Assyrian Empire is going to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Jonah is from Israel. So he knows my home country is going to get their butt kicked by these guys. I don't want anything good to happen to them. I'm not going. So our little friend runs away from God's call. If you pull up that map, it will show the... So that's his journey. I think there was a second one. Is that the only one? Okay, I think I may have given the wrong map. If you look... So imagine with me that the map goes slightly more left. So the thing that looks like a boot, that's modern-day Italy. So you would have to go across another gulf, and then there's what is modern-day France and Spain. Tarshish is on the southern coast of Spain. So you would be running from, like, modern-day Jerusalem to the modern-day south of Spain. So for us, that's like a six-hour, eight-hour plane ride in their time. Like, that is a journey. So when Jonas hears God's call, a very direct, like, get up, go and deliver this message, his reaction is, no, thank you. But it's not just a no, thank you. It's like a kind of a screw you. I'm going the opposite direction. And not like walking in the opposite. I'm running in the opposite direction. I'm going to get as far away from those people because I don't want there to be any possibility that I could even kind of obey what you have called me to. This is the, the classic difference between delayed obedience and like complete rebellion. So if you're anything like me, you're good at the delayed obedience, right? So if someone asks you to do something and you give them the classic in a minute, which is vague enough that they know that you heard them, but it could be anywhere from literally five minutes to six years, something like that. Uh, four days is better. That's what I meant. Four days. Yes. Wow. I, no one here wants to be my friend anymore. They're like, that guy does not follow through. So obviously the term is very malleable. That's why we use it. But delayed obedience is annoying. Total rebellion demands a response. It merits a punishment. So imagine with me that we're going to throw a birthday party for the homie Julie. Right? Everyone knows Julie. We love her and her dog. Actually, it's going to be for Julie's dog. We're going to throw Julie's dog a birthday party because we love dogs. And I invite Julie to my house. And I say, Julie, we're going to throw the birthday party at my house. Invite all your friends. I just need your help setting up. And Julie shows up. I give her very clear instructions. I say, Julie, I need your help. There's toys outside because my rugrat kid leaves a mess everywhere he goes. So you grab those toys, you put them in the outside bucket, throw them in the playhouse. Uh, there's leaves under that tree in the backyard, just rake them up, throw them in the green bin. And then the patio, right, let's dust it off a little bit. There's a broom right there, sweep it quick. It'll take you like 15 minutes. It would make the backyard look perfect so your dog could run around and all your friends could have food and share in wonderful conversation. Julie shows up, gets these instructions, and Julie doesn't, she's not a proponent of delayed obedience. She's a proponent of total rebellion. So she got the instructions, but then what she in fact did was she brought inside toys, right? If you, none of you have kids, so you don't know the difference, but there is a difference between inside toys and outside toys, and you do not mix those things. So she brings inside toys outside, which is already like if there were parents in here. Where's Trent? Trent, yeah, yeah. He would know. Like, that's like... The 11th commandment. So she breaks the 11th commandment. And then, rather than raking up the leaves around the tree, she takes my leaf blower and shoots 
the tree, so there's more leaves that fall down. And then she takes the broom, breaks it, and uses the pieces to throw leaves and dirt on the patio. What do you think my reaction would be? I can guarantee you it would not be, ain't no thing, girl, don't worry about it. Uh, it would be a little bit more like frowny-faced, and there would in fact be some repercussion. That like the party might not happen if she was being like, you know, really aggressive about it, but would probably like, I'd be like, Julie, like you gotta fix this. And Julie's like, I'm not gonna fix it, I do what I want. And you're like, Julie, I'm, I'm gonna ask you to leave. There, there would, for the purpose of the illustration, I wouldn't kick someone out of my house, bear with me. My point is, if you ask someone to do something and they delay, it's annoying, but you overlook it. If you ask someone to do something and they do the exact opposite, you should expect a punishment. There should be a repercussion. Me asking someone to clean up a house is this big. God calling a prophet to go to a city and proclaim repentance is a big thing. People's souls depend on it. What do you think God is going to do when Jonah walks, sprints, flows away in a boat? He will hold them accountable. And that's exactly what happens as the story moves on. But at this point, I think we can camp here because there's a lesson here in the way that Jonah reacts. You see, if you've read through the story, Jonah says all the right things. When you get to verse 9, Jonah's like, I'm a Hebrew. I fear God, the creator of the universe. Jonah sounds like a Christian. He sounds perfect. But when you look at Jonah's life, he is the kind of guy who hears God's words and runs in the opposite direction. Jonah is all talk, no action. He says he fears God, but his life does not reflect that. I think there's a lesson here for people like you and me. I've been a Christian for over 20, 25 years. I became a Christian at age six. I grew up in the church. And if you looked at my life at various points, I don't think you could honestly say, Freddie loves God. Freddie is walking with Jesus. I've served at this church for five years. And I interact with people that went to ACS, they went to MEI, they're part of the youth group, they're part of young adults. They say the right things. But when I ask them, what is your life like? When I see them in public, what is your life like? When I see what they post on social, what is your life like? They look a lot like Jonah. They know the right things. They just run in the opposite direction. And I think there's a lesson here for us because Jonah, at this point in the story, is a negative example of what faith looks like. If you look at the scriptures, they are full of positive examples. I want to give you one. In the book of Job, in Job 1.1, the way that Job is described shows what the Bible speaks of when it describes good people, like saving faith type stuff. Job. This was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And the man was blameless and upright. He feared God, right? He says the same thing as Jonah, but he actually lived it. He turned away from evil. And you're like, oh, so he just didn't do bad things. No, no, no. He didn't do bad things, and he did a whole bunch of good things. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of his 
of, of them all, all his kids. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job was the kind of guy who feared God. And we could see that he feared God, not just because he said it, but because he had actions that proved his words. He continually offered sacrifice to God, both in the form of animal sacrifice and in the form of his prayers. Jonah is the opposite of that. Jonah is an unwilling prophet. And in the story of Jonah, at this point, three verses in, there's a powerful lesson for us. Faith is more than just knowledge. I know that when we hear that word, if you've been around the church, you, you think faith is knowledge. Like, I had to believe things about Jesus. That is true. You do have to believe some things about Jesus. But faith is more than just knowledge. Faith is also action. Jonah is the kind of dude who cannot follow through. We see this in our lives all the time. I see this in my own life. I don't want to pick on just you. I feel convicted when I read this. I, so, for example, I, I know God's Word. I've had theological training for nine years. So you learn some stuff over nine years. And I read verses like 1 Corinthians 13, 4 that says, Love is patient and kind. And then if you catch me on the wrong day, I'm having a bad, I'm having an off game. Not that it would ever happen, Adam. I would never have an off game when I'm hooping. But I'm having an off game when I'm hooping. Uh, I didn't sleep well enough. They were out of flamethrowers at Dairy Queen. Whatever it is that set me off. I, you catch me on the wrong day. And I'm kind of an angry dude. Like, I know what God's word says. It says that love is patient and kind. And if you ask me, Freddie, what kind of man are you? I would say, man, I'm patient and kind, bro. But then you would see me. You're like, but you're like, you're yelling at your teammates. Like, you, you don't sound like a Christian, dude. And I'm like, no, no, no. My Christianity is on pause while I try to win this game. <laughs> right? Like, it's funny, but we live like that. That's not you. That's Freddie's struggle, but that struggle is not unique to me. All of us pause our Christianity in particular events in our life, and that pause isn't just a pause. You're pulling a Jonah. You're running away from God. You know what God says because you feel something, and you're like, in this moment, it's just God would understand. I'm having a hard time. Jonah is a negative example because his faith is just knowledge. He just says the right things. So I want to give you some time here. I, I want to give you a few self-reflection questions. Jonah disobeys God's call. Do, do you obey God's call? So Jonah didn't. Jonah knew God's word, just chose not to do it. So I don't know how much Bible you know, but I'm sure you know something. The things that you do know, would you say that if I looked at your life, we would say, yeah, I'm obeying the Lord? Or more, more pointed, maybe, if we looked at your life, you know, all the barriers down, would we say you were running from God? If you look at Jonah's life, the first three verses in, we see he's running from God. My fear in a room of this size is that there are people here who are running from God. And it is not too late to turn. 
as Jonah's story goes on, you're going to see that God moves, God acts to turn Jonah. My hope is that the same thing happens in your life. Saving faith is active. We see this in an unwilling prophet, a negative example. We have a positive example in unlikely converts. So I'm going to read the rest of the story. It is like 15 verses, starting in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, right? God responded. Jonah runs away. There's a, there's a repercussion. There's a punishment. God sent, send us, God sent a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up, right? It, this is, we don't really experience this because our boats are made of metal now, but occasionally, like if you've ever been on a BC ferry, when they dock, you hear like the creaking, and it sounds a little bit unsettling because you're like, is the boat breaking or is the dock breaking? Something sounds like it's breaking. Wooden boats do that just by existing. In a stormy sea, the boat threatening to break apart, like it, it sounds like sandpaper is going. The, the boat is falling apart. These guys are terrified. The mariners are afraid and each cried out to his God. But it wasn't enough. They hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. These guys are freaking out. The storm is big. They're scared. Everyone's praying to their God, and they do what anyone would do. They want to find out whose fault is this. Someone's got to get blamed. So verse 7, Come, let us cast lots. The lot... Let us cast lots. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temp tempestuous. Wow, I'm ESL, that hurt word hurt. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, you Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. They picked Jonah up, hurled him in the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then they feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. As the story of Jonah progresses, the dude who was running away from God, we see this big storm. And this big storm is not happenstance. The text explicitly tells us this was sent from God. God is punishing Jonah. This is the repercussion for his rebellion. God sends a storm, and the storm makes the boat feel like it's tearing apart. Sailors were some of the roughest people in their time, right? Like, they, they were the, you know, ta I guess, tattooed and drinking 
party boys of their world. They weren't really scared of much. And this storm is so crazy that it makes them scared. Every single one of them is praying. They wake up a guy who's sleeping to get him to pray. These guys are terrified, the text tells us, because they know that this is the work of a god. They just, they don't know which god. They're pagans. They worship a whole bunch of gods. So they're praying to everybody. They're doing everything in their physical power to survive. They lighten the boat. They pray to every god they know of. They wake the sleeping guy and say, pray to your god. Right? They're covering every base. These guys are desperate to survive. But as they're reacting, they uncover a complicated situation. See, Jonah is the reason that the whole storm has started. And Jonah offers them a solution. Like, just throw me in the water. But they're like, that would make us murderers. So, like, God is mad at you. But if we throw you in, then God will be mad at us too. So we can't do it. And the text tells us they dug in. Right? They, they, they rode like crazy. They, in ancient times, mariners didn't sail too far from the shore because they were afraid of getting lost. So these guys are rowing, and they can kind of in the distance see safety. They just can't get there. They're desperate. They know they're going to die. And they're asking this guy, okay, like, what can we do? What can we do? He says, Throw me in the water. As they interrogate him, they, like, they want to know, why should we throw you in the water? Like, what could you have done that God would send a storm to kill a whole boat full of people? How, how wicked are you? And based on the way they're asking, you, you think their response would, would, or the response of Jonah would be like, I kill people for a living, or I, I beat up dogs, or you know, whatever the most wicked thing that you can do. Right? They think like, you're like the worst person in the world. But Jonah's like, I'm a Hebrew, I fear God. And they're like, that's actually worse. You're rebelling against the God who made the universe. And they're afraid. They're so afraid. So these desperate guys who are afraid, they do what they must. And they take Jonah's advice. They, Jonah says, throw me in the water. They throw him in the water. When they throw Jonah in the water, we're told, the, te- the, the text says, the storm ceased. It's not clear if it ceased, like, in a moment or if it took a few minutes. But what is clear is that there was causation. When Jonah went in the water, the storm was done. God was after one man. And as God is after this one man, as God sends this storm, he has a plan. They throw Jonah in the water. The sailors fear that they have murdered this man. They are praying to God, like, God, please forgive us. May this innocent blood not be upon us. We didn't want to kill him. We didn't have a choice. But God has a plan. God is working and sends the big fish. But I want to focus on the sailors before we get back to Jonah. These sailors are the exact opposite of Jonah. The story of Jonah in verse 1 begins with telling us who Jonah is. He is a prophet of God from Israel. Like He has all the pedigree. He's the right kind of guy. The sailors, we know nothing about. We just know they had many gods. And based on their profession, we can imagine they were just rough dudes. Jonah, the guy who knew God, who feared God, apparently, in verse 9, who knows that God created the universe, that guy is running away from him. That's what we see. That's his faith. The sailors went from praying for a bunch of gods, praying to a bunch of gods, pardon me, to praying to one specific god. 
We're told that they give sacrifices. They, like, they respond in action. They offer a sacrifice to the Lord in verse 16. But it's not just like the Lord, like generic God. No, the, the Lord in this passage is Yahweh. They offer a sacrifice to the God. They went from pagans, like believing in many gods, to monotheistic, believing in one God in one storm. It took one weather event for them to turn. These guys, I think, are a positive example of saving faith. They moved from the knowledge of we know who the God is, Yahweh, to the action of giving sacrifice. But they, they actually went even one step further. Because if, if you take knowledge and action, I, I think you have, like, those two together make saving faith. But that doesn't actually tell us the motivation for the action. It doesn't tell us why, why would I obey, actually. Like, what is it in me that would make me want to obey God? There's so many rules. Why follow them? And in the sailors, in their response, I think we see that. Verse 16 uses an interesting word. It says they made vows. And this is weird language to us because the only time we ever really hear it is at weddings where people say, like, I'm in, right? For better or for worse. These sailors making their vows is making that kind of commitment. They're saying, like, we are in. Like, there's one God. We're going to sacrifice to the one God. We're going to pray to the one God. We're going to follow the one God, no matter what. Like, we are all in. Jonah said he feared God. The sailors actually look like it. Their life says, I fear God. In these unlikely converts, we see that faith is more than just action. And we actually also learn the motivation for the action. So faith is no, like knowledge of God. You have to know the right God. And action, you have to obey the right God. But in the life of the sailors, we see the motivation for the right actions. That motivation is your affection. Like what, what do you love? What do you care about? You see, the, the Old Testament will use this phrase, fear of God or, or fear Yahweh, fear the Lord. And that phrase to us feels so weird because we don't talk like that. If you read the King James Bible, you'll see it a little bit more. But if you don't read a King James, King James Bible and you don't read much of the Old Testament, you just might not be familiar with the phrase. But this phrase in the Old Testament is used to capture a mixture of what the New Testament would say is like faith and love, like kind of mixed together. It is a, an emotive experience that is a, a blend of awe and trembling and, and obedience. Like, if I was going to give you a, like a real-world example, uh, it would be like, if you've ever been in a lightning storm, like when, when you see flashes and you hear the thunder and it, like, it sounds like the earth is cracking in half, right, like that, and you feel really, really small, that feeling, but from like inside your house. So you're like, I see it, but I don't feel in great danger. That experience of being in a lightning storm is very different if you are in a boat on the open ocean compared to inside a safe building. The Old Testament uses this phrasing to say, like, if you're God's people, you're in the building. You're safe. You see the power of God. You see the might of God. You see all the things he does, and you feel a mixture of awe and trembling and shock, but you know you're safe. You're safe because you're God's people. You, you obey him. You are 
his people and he is your God. The way the Old Testament uses this word is replaced in the New Testament by love. One of the best examples is Luke 10, 27. This is the greatest commandment. So a, a, a Jewish leader is testing Jesus, and Jesus flips the question on him and says, how would you summarize the law? And the man responds, he, so the, a lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Right? So that's a one-verse summary of everything God commands his people. But the key verb is love. You, you love God. Why, why would I want to know God? Because I love him. Why would I want my life to have the right kind of actions? Because I love him. In the life of these sailors, I think we see everything that is required for saving faith. We see knowledge, we see action, and we see the awe, the fear of God, that is the motivation for that action. So I want to leave you with a question. Uh, as time is running out here, Jonah knew God's word and rejected it. I don't know how much Bible you know, but I assume you know some. You're here, so you at least know this part of the book of Jonah. When you look at your life, would you say that you fear God, to use Old Testament language, or to put it in New Testament language, would you say that you love God? I think when we look at the story, we have to face that question. Does my life say I love God? Like, do I actually obey him? Or am I like Jonah? When people look at my life, do they see someone that has knowledge and action, because that's saving faith, or they, do they see someone who's running away? This question is incredibly important for us. I don't know how many times you'll come back to young adults. I hope you come back next week. We will be here again, Lord willing. But as often as you come here, what you will get is songs about God, prayer to God, and teaching from the scriptures about God. Because what we believe is that saving faith is knowledge and action. All I can really do is teach you. And the way you respond shows what you think about God. The actions in your life show if that knowledge has come in or if you're like Jonah and running away. Returning to the story I shared with you at the beginning, my friend has not reconciled with his wife. He's still away. He's no longer with the woman he left his wife for. So there's hope. And there are moments where I feel tremendously sad, where I'm like, this situation will never get better. Like, God, how could you let this happen? But in moments of clarity, I think to myself, God, like, there is still time. Like, Jonah's story didn't end with him running away. God sent a whale, God sent a storm to stop his rebellion. Sailors throw him in the ocean, and God sends a whale to save his life. The whale isn't the punishment. The storm was the punishment. The whale is his salvation. And I think to myself, God, hey, matter of fact, uh, God, my, my friend is running away. Can you send a whale? 
Can you send a storm and then send a whale? I don't know what your life is like. <clears throat> Maybe you are running away too. I hope that you keep coming back and that our words, as we preach from the Bible, are the storm. And I pray that as you land in community here, that that would be the whale that brings you back. I think there is a God, one God, not many, one God. He can be known, and he must be obeyed. If you look at the story of Jonah, I think you see the same thing. Saving faith is active. Let me pray for us, and then I'll invite the worship team back up. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word uh, that challenges us, Lord. Uh, when we see this story, uh, I think we read prophet and we think it's going to be a good one. And then we see rebellion. And then, Lord, we look at our own life and we, we see the same thing. So, Father, I pray for every single person here that you would work in their life. In the same way that you worked in Jonah's, you were not willing to let him continue in his rebellion. Father, I pray that you would work in the life of the people here I don't know what their spiritual state is, but Father, I pray that they would feel burdened for you and they would turn. Lord, we, we are patient. We'll wait for your time. And in the meantime, Father, I pray that you help us be clear with our teaching and turn people towards you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.